Hello, this is Toby Haydokes, Who's Round, and the following interview is the result of a chance encounter and therefore involved no preparation from either of us. You understand? Well, hello, everybody. This one has been done something on the hoof, so it's a surprise for me and for my interviewee. So I'm going to ask him who he is and to tell me why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. I'm uh, Donald Douglas, and I played a character called Vural in the Sontaran Experiment. Yes, and uniquely for those characters in the Sontaran Experiment, everyone else was a, an actor of South African origin. Or who I, I really <laughs> I was trying to remember how that happened. <laughs> There were two, at least two other actors who were South African, and I'm Scottish, but I did have a lot of uh, South African relations, so I was quite used to doing a send-up, you know, you can't do dead men, you know, terrible South African accent. So it's, it's odd because I was not aware of uh, South Africa having a space programme, you know. <laughs> so why we were this weird little bunch of South Africans, I don't know, funny. Well, it's the future, I think. It's the, the changing of language. Yeah. So, had you worked with um, Rodney Bennett, the director, before? Again, I'm so old, I can't remember whether <laughs> Sense and Sensibility came before or afterwards. I think probably afterwards. And uh, probably, yes, because he... Yeah, I think it did, yeah. He, um, my agent put me up for the part of the squire in Sense and Sensibility, and Rodney uh, wrote back saying, I think Donald's rather too quiet and shy for the... Squire, so she, he probably observed that during um, Doctor Who. So I decided I really wanted to play it, and uh, I borrowed a red setter dog from a friend, and I put on my jodhpurs and my hacking jacket, and I got to the BBC to have my interview, and the commissioner said, sorry, no dogs allowed. And I said, no, no, this, this is part of the act, you know, the dog's got to come with me. <laughs> so I burst into Rodney's office saying, Rodney, how good to see you, old man, you know, and put on this squirish act and got the part. That's some chutzpah. <laughs> so that's when I worked with him again, yes, it was fun. And do you remember with, um, with the Doctor, which we'll stick with temporarily, we will talk about all your other stuff, um, that obviously during Sontaran Experiment, the, the big news story of that was Tom Baker... Breaking his collarbone, yes, do you remember yes, that? Yes, yeah. I can't remember the circumstances, but uh, it was all outdoor filming on, was it Dartmoor or Exmoor? I can't remember. Dartmoor, Dartmoor. yeah. And so it was heather and rocks, and you could fall over very easily. So it must have been during that, that filming. But um, I can't remember if he carried on bravely. I think he probably did. Yeah. There was that, and a bit of Terry Walsh, the stunt double, did a lot of the sort of long shots. All oh, right. Um, so it was a mixture of the two. Yeah. Mm. He was he was taken away to hospital by Roger Murray Leach, the designer, oh. who, oh. and um, I think was in hospital for about five hours, and then mm. you know came mm. back the, came mm. back the next mm. day, and mm. the scarf was used as a sling. I think. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, I mean, loca location filming is, is usually a lot of fun for actors, but it was quite a bleak, bleak setting, wasn't it? It was bleak, but we were given over our rather flimsy spacesuits, I think, cut-price spacesuits, these uh, bright yellow waterproof suits, onesies, that uh, if you're an ocean-going yachtsman that you have, so you're completely protected from the weather. 
So much so that um, we could sort of fling ourselves down on the heather and practically bounce up again, a bit like the sort of CBBs. Um, so that was very enjoyable. It was in the fresh air, and I don't think the rain rained. I think the sun shone. Uh, we put up in a very nice hotel. No, it was good. I have good memories of it. Mm. And what about some of the other extras? Remember Elizabeth Sladen and Ian Martin? Yes. Mm. No, she was really lovely. Very, very warm, welcoming person. Um, poor old Kevin Lindsay, who played the Sontaran. It was his, it was his last television job because he'd got this heart condition. Ah, right. Meant he, he died six weeks after it was shown. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I remember the, his um, amazing prosthetic uh, head, which... I mean, it was no CGI effects in those days. And as I remember, I think he had to pull a string inside to make the lips go up and down. Well, no CGI means there's there's also, I don't know if you remember the android, the robot. Yes, because, again, uh, on the moor, difficult to put up a track that was smooth. So we were all cowering down, terrified of his approaching robot. And was it a... Forerunner of um, a Dalek. Had the Daleks? No, the been, Daleks had already been. Already been there, yeah, right. they'd already been around a while. Now, well, this, this thing looked like a kind of um, those salt shakers you get in uh, fish and chip <laughs> shops, you know, sort of grey tin thing with a dome top. And because it was on this track, which wasn't at all smooth, uh, it wasn't really menacing as it kind of wobbled towards you from <laughs> side to side. Yeah. Well, so take me back, Donald. What made you uh, want to become an actor, and was it a, a, an easy path to follow? Uh, well, like most actors, I began as a very inarticulate, shy schoolboy. But in Scotland, we had this amazing uh, English teacher who was from the Highlands and had this wonderful, soft Highland accent. And he held elocution classes, not to speak posh English, but to speak Scots with articulation and... and uh, and uh, he then started a drama club, and so that was one thing. Um, and then uh, I went to art school and uh, played Romeo, and some critic came up from London, who was a friend of the director, and said, you ought to take up this professionally. And my parents were appalled. You know. <laughs> what would you do during the daytime? You know, It's not a proper job, all that stuff. So I thought, well, um, I'm determined to get there somehow. But at that point, national service, two years of national service, when I joined another drama club. And um, someone saw me and said the same thing. So I applied for a a scholarship to RADA, and uh, I got one. And uh, that's how it all, all began. And who were your contemporaries at Rada then? Because that was the place to go. John Thor was uh, a year behind. Sean Phillips was a year ahead. Um, Susanna York had been a year ahead. Uh, but the idols that the teachers still talked about were um, Albert Finney and uh, Peter O'Toole. You know, the... Wasn't Tom Courtney there around that time as well? He was, indeed he was. He was, he was. Yes. Thor, wasn't he? Yes, yeah. that's right, yes. And I interviewed an actress called Pamela Ann Davey, who was there yes. around that time, who's no. back in Australia. Yes, now. she was um, a very strong personality, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Having gone to Rada, does that, did that mean your path into the profession was, was easier than it, than, it, than it might have been? I think so, because um, I was given a, a television job playing the young hero in uh, Walter Scott, 
epic. Um, because I'd been in the summer vac, I'd been playing a 75-year-old minister in a Scottish play called The Baker Charavari. And uh, this director was looking for a young Scottish actor and saw my unmade-up face in the programme and uh, cast me, in, and that was a, a real kind of good start. And then um, a season at uh, Stratford. So I had both a sort of TV exposure and then the classical, you know, extra bit of training. Was that sort of what, that was 1915? Uh, 1960, it was when Peter Hall started the, uh, the new company. Full of amazing stars, you know, Dorothy Tootin, Patrick Weimark, Peter O'Toole, Peggy Ashcroft. Wow. Was endless. So wow. <laughs> you were learning every time you went to rehearsal as you were sort of seeing. Weimark was a very strong actor, wasn't he? Mm, yeah. Well, I was going to say, did, did, as, a, as a young actor then, as a young, hungry actor, did, you know, if you're getting a lead in television, but always also there's the RSC, was, was the pull more towards the theatre then? Was, was television still sort of seen yes. as a bit of a young I mean, uh, I think rather in my day, your ambition was to stand centre stage reciting Friends, Romans, Countrymen. Or, you know, that was a sort of filling a theatre and that was the excitement. But then uh, you have a family and uh, you realise that television is where the money is and uh, so you get drawn more into that. <clears throat> and who, in those early days, then who were the actors that you worked with that you, that you thought you learnt the most from and, 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 and what did you learn? In a fine way, not to be too intense. You know, Peter O'Toole, who was giving amazing performances as Shylock and Petruchio, he almost sent the whole thing up, particularly off stage as he was about to make an entrance. Um, and he'd stand smoking as Shylock, blowing the smoke off stage, and uh, occasionally would raise his gown and show us his red knickers just before he came on, you know, <laughs> all that sort of... <laughs> uh, but the minute he was on, this amazing performance would happen and it's as if the risk of sending something up beforehand produces the adrenaline and, and gives you that burst of energy and in the same way later in another 78 season uh, Jonathan Price would deliberately be playing cards in the green room until he could hear his next entrance you know sort of two lines away and he'd leave not running, but he'd leave the green room and stride and come on to the stage and say his first line. And I think it's the same thing, that it was a way of producing that energy wow. and the adrenaline to um, break through in front of an audience. You've got to be quite bold to do that. Yeah, you? yeah. Mm, mm. And, and, I mean, what about, you know, the way that television was, was made in those days? Obviously, totally unrecognised. Actors today no. wouldn't mm, recognise yeah. mm. that... Um, you know, continuous recording and, mm, uh, yeah. and all of that. So how do, 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 do you think, often when I interview actors who say, you know, well, we used to rehearse for five days at the Acton Hilton and mm, then we used to mm. do it and we used to get much better performances. Is that slightly nostalgic just because it's more fun for actors to rehearse and, <laughs> and have, have a good time with each other? Do, mm. do we, the audience, lose anything, do you think? Maybe uh, a kind of... Again, there's a sort of panic that uh, you would have with a live TV. I mean, I did a live TV 
with an actor called Tom Fleming, who mm. was always making tremendous pauses, you know. And the floor manager would think he'd dried and press the button. And then Tom would say the next line, and the, the silence button was still on. And I said, which <laughs> 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 was quite uh, difficult. No, I, I think a, a good rehearsal is, is not just fun, it's, uh, you know, good practice. Useful for the, mm, for the yeah. production. Mm. So what about some of those 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 TVs in the sixties? I was I was reminded, um, I did the DVD of um, Douglas Wilmer's Sherlock Holmes. Oh yes. And uh, you were in the the, the, the sort of the, the speckled band, wasn't mm, it? The, the, yeah. Which was sort of the pilot mm, for that. And, yeah. and Douglas was not backward in coming forward about how tricky he'd found that. Mm, mm, um, mm. And then again, other people who worked on the show were not backward in coming forward about how tricky they found mm. Douglas. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How did mm. you find that? Um, I don't remember him being tricky, but uh, it it seemed rather kind of uh, stiff, the whole process. You know, these huge cameras being moved around the floor, and uh, whereas now it's so fluid and, uh, well, it's like making a movie. You know? mm. I have one complaint now with, with television today, and that the... Young actors, particularly, they they you know, they've got huge close-ups, and so they think, well, I'll, I'll bring it down, and so they they mumble, and I mean, there have actually been complaints. I think that um, realism is all very well, but uh, if you can't sort of project the lines and get people to understand, it's it's kind of crazy. Um, and in the same way, in the theatre. Um, in sometimes quite large theatres, they will bring down the level because they feel otherwise they're shouting. And I've seen that happen at the National. And uh, I've got hearing aids, but even with hearing aids, it's a problem. Mm. Um, so uh, it'd, be, it'd be a shame if everybody in the end has head mics, you know, because there's nothing like the pure voice, you know, coming over. I, mean, I did a tour uh, with David Suchet in huge theatres and um, we were all head mic'd but what the people doing the control said was that if you feel you can fill the theatre, just do it as you would do and we will tweak you down. Damn. And the younger actors were tweaked up and the, it's so incredibly uh, sensitive, the whole working of that, that uh, people just didn't notice. Uh, it's, um, but I think it would be a shame if, if that's the way theatre was going. Conversely, though, I guess, in, you know, back in the... Up until relatively recently, drama school training was all about the theatre, wasn't mm, it? And, yeah, and, the, and yeah. actually television technique. Well, there was no television technique in 1959. <laughs> 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 Well, are there other are there other changes in the the, the business for better or worse than, than uh, that you've observed over the years? I think actors can now speak up if they don't agree with a director. You know, it's more democratic. Sometimes too democratic. You know, if you get some bumptious actor who kind of practically wants to take over the production. But I remember one used to be in awe, you know, of a director and. Um, say yes sir, no sir, and, and do it when you felt it wasn't really right. I mean, someone like Tyron Guthrie 
managed to be incredibly powerful, but at the same time generous. And uh, I was in a production of The Anatomist at the Glasgow Sits, and um, the girl that, the prostitute I'd been with the night before, is discovered in a tea chest dead because she's being taken away by the uh, body snatchers. Yeah. And uh, I see what's in the, the case, the tea chest. And I said, I, I'm not sure I would have been able to speak. I, I would have been sick, you know. And he said, dear boy, be sick, but off stage <laughs> and come, <laughs> come back, you know, wiping your mouth. And uh, that, that was really effective and real, you know. But some directors wouldn't, you, wouldn't allow you to have that little uh, bit of imagination, I think. And what about television directors that you might have worked with that, 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 that particularly stick in mind? <laughs> I can think of one lady who was uh, pretty uh, despotic, if that's the word. So I think they had to be, didn't they? Yes, in the they were fighting of, for their place. Yeah, yeah. The, the paternalistic yeah. nature of it. She used to wear dungarees. Yeah. Yes. And <laughs> um, well, I suppose we should talk about um, because it's been it's been remade, but it was such a massive hit the first time around as Poldark, mm, which yeah. you had mm. a key role in. Mm. So how did that come about, and what are your memories of it? That came about because of uh, an actor I'd worked with being very kind, Michael Culver. Oh yes. I'd done a series at the BBC about the RAF. And again, no CGI effects because the planes that were filmed were on wires, sort of, you know, <laughs> kind of hanging there. Uh, and pretty easy to spot. Anyway, we'd been fellow officers in this RAF drama and he had been up for the role of McNeil. And he said, I can't do the Scots accent. Do you need um, Donald Douglas? So that's how I got that role. Um, and that was a, you know, really generous thing of him to do. Extremely. Mm. But, I mean, nowadays there's far less drama being made. Then it must have just seemed like another, just another job because there was so much television mm. drama mm. at the time being made. And yet it had this, this massive impact. So mm. did any of you see that, that coming? And also, why do you think it was that it did out of all the drama that was made over that mm. period? It, 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 it was such a big success. I think the central relationship between um, Poldark and uh, Demelza um, was so strong. I mean, there was a real chemistry there. And the fact that it was full-blown romance, you know, and, uh, of course, the Cornish countryside and, and all that. Um, and I can see that, that's why they would want to do it again. But, of course... The advantage now is that the whole thing is on film, whereas we were studio-bound for a lot of the time. Yeah. But uh, watching it again, it, it hasn't dated that much. You know, it, it still holds up, I think. Um, and have you seen the new one? I have indeed. And uh, it's great, it's good. I get a bit tired of the horse galloping across the cliff edge and then going back in the other direction. It's sort of endless. <laughs> And how did you how did you balance um, because you've worked 
in, in, in all the different means. Have you ever had to sort of make a big choice between a, a theatre job and a television job? And, and, and you know, what, what the choices involved in something like in, in balancing a career mm. that you've managed to sustain yeah. you know, against the odds of most actors, let's mm. be honest? Mm. Um, well, once, you know, I was married and had children, the, the, the prime thing was actually making a living so that, that all worked. So that television or film, if you were lucky enough, would be the thing. But also, if it was theatre, unless it was in London, which I did, but if, say, you were offered Hamlet in Stoke-on-Trent, uh, that, when you were unattached, would have been uh, a great thing to do, but uh, you couldn't just run off and leave the family and be paid peanuts and just doing it for the glory of acting. So... Um, is your wife in the business as well? She was, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, was you, but was but your your parents weren't at all. There was no background. Oh no, no not background at all. At all. No, no, just uh, Scottish um, working class and with no idea or knowledge of the theatre at all. Um, I hadn't realised you were Scottish because I'd seen you in so many things, and you quite often play like sort of upper upper class mm, Brits. Yeah. It was it was when you turned up in EastEnders as as yes. Ruth's <laughs> grumpy, yes. grumpy dad. Grumpy dad, yes. No, um, <laughs> it was one of those things where at RADA in those days you were taught to talk posh and sustain it, whereas now somebody like David Tennant can talk any dialect of Scots and then be posh if he wants to be um, and I think that's the way it should be but the other thing was I was tall and when I had hair I was blonde and I looked like an English toff uh, if I'd had red hair and was sort of uh, you know sort of <laughs> not so tall and a bit sort of uh, rough around the edges then uh, I would probably pay more Scots but it, it's just if you go into an interview and you say, hello, my name's Donald Douglas, uh, and, you know, I, I've done this in the theatre. If they're casting Sir Somebody, you know, they just... You can, of course, then produce the accent, but they, they want... That, you know, that thing of you go through the door and you're pretty much cast as you go in. You know, they've made up their minds, you know. You, so. I, 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 I seem to recall, because I, I, I've, I've not done been able to do prep for this because it was on the fly, but I, I recall you playing... Prince Philip in a in a in a was a, a slightly Diana, controversial Diana mm, the Truth yeah. yeah and um, that was extraordinary because we were told that it would never be shown in England so we didn't feel nervous about you know not being asked to the palace or whatever but of course within six weeks of it being produced it was on sale in Woolworths and <laughs> DVD. <laughs> But the whole, the whole process was extraordinary because um, Anne Stalibras, for one, was an absolutely spitting image of the Queen. And I can't remember the girl's name who played um, uh, Anne. And she, again, it was remarkable how, how much... I had much too fat a face to play Philip, really, but um, they couldn't find somebody thinner. But it was just that as we got the scripts, and they were coming in, you know, for each sequence... Uh, they were being checked by lawyers as to whether they'd get into trouble. And uh, they'd also be checked by English writers, because it was all written, sent to America uh, by uh, David Morton, was the writer, wasn't he? 
Andrew. Andrew Morton. Andrew Morton. Had written the book. The book was sent to Hollywood, and these American writers would adapt it. So the Queen would say, uh, "I think we're not going to do that." You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shucks, Philip. Yes. <laughs> So that was continually being adjusted and rewritten, but it it was um, that was it was fun. Yeah. And um, you mentioned David Suchet before because you worked with him on a, on Poirot. Poirot, yeah. And uh, uh, that's a performance that that's always fascinated me because it seems so fastidious. And, and am I right in thinking he stays in character um, between takes as well? Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Um, no, it, it is. I think one of the most detailed uh, performances you're likely to see. You know, I think uh, the the walk. I mean, everything about him. He'd studied very carefully what he felt this character would be, and um, I think it's probably closest to the character in the book than anybody. You know. Well, I haven't seen the film starring Kenneth Branagh's enormous moustache yet. Well, that's that's it. It's an enormous moustache playing Poirot, yeah. (laughs) I suppose if you're in a film and that moustache has to be in it, you ought to be the one who's wearing it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, we touched on EastEnders. I mean, how was it being in a a soap? Because um, the the production schedules for those can be quite fraught, can't they? Mm. Um, I I once was doing something in Manchester and the, the... not crossroads. The um, coronation coronation street <laughs> cast were using the same green room, and I made the mistake of sitting in one of the stars' chairs. You know, and it was literally. Sorry, that's my chair. You can't sit. <laughs> <laughs> but the opposite of that was um, EastEnders. East yeah, yeah. EastEnders, um, where they were so friendly, so welcoming, and. Um, Wendy Richards. Wendy Richards, who I'd worked with in uh, something years ago. Uh, if we, we had to fly up and do some location filming in, in Glasgow. And uh, we were all on economy, but uh, she would just go through into the first-class lounge and say, hello, I'm, I'm here with my friends from EastEnders, and they practically sort of bowed and said, would you like champagne? Literally. <laughs> <laughs> so because of her, wherever we went... You know, we got the star treatment. Treated like royalty. But she could not walk through the streets of wherever we were uh, without being pestered. So she was put on a hood and dark glasses. And uh, so it must be, if you're that famous, it must be pretty difficult. It's the actor's dilemma, though, isn't it? Is that you sort of want to be well known because that helps with the yeah. work. Mm, but, mm. I mean, does, 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 if, does a level of fame would it does it worry or does it not even enter into your your thoughts about the profession? Mm, I don't think it has. I mean, I've had funny experiences when we were doing pole dark. I was in a, a pub with Robin, and there was a very rowdy table, people from up north, and um, I could see they clocked us, and I went to the bar to get the next round of drinks, and this man came up and I thought, ooh, um, he's, you know, going to see, is is that Robin, you know? And he didn't. He said, my wife wants to know, were you in a dancing troupe with Dick Emery? (laughs) (laughs) So I thought, 
oh, well, he's, I've been recognised, but <laughs> not in the way I want. <laughs> but I was able to go back to Robin and say, no, it wasn't you they were interested in. It wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> for something completely, for yes. something completely different. Um, well, and, I mean, but, but, but um, worldwide, um, Bridget Jones mm. uh, is something of a phenomenon, mm-hmm. and you've d- done... You know, an a key part in uh, in those in, movies. In the first one, yeah. Not any of the others, sadly. But uh, so how how, uh, how how did that come about? And is is the you know is the Hollywood machine um, something you can tell me about? Well, there was a casting director that I knew who was um, casting it, and um, I think it was touch and go whether I was going to do it. But at the read through. They decided I would, um, and it was one of the most terrifying read-throughs I've ever been in because Hugh Grant's sitting there and Colin Firth there, and next to me is Rennie Zellweger because Jim Broadbent couldn't make the reading, so I was reading for his part of her dad and uh, Colin's father as well, and. Uh, she was desperately trying to put on more weight, so by her script she had about six bars of chocolate and this horrendous-looking uh, dark drink, sticky-looking drink, which she would take a slug from every now and again. Um, and I was so nervous, surrounded by all these stars, my stomach started to rumble quite loudly. And without taking her eyes off the script, she took a bar of chocolate and went and put it in front of me, so I hit the chocolate, <laughs> put it back. Uh, two minutes later, my stomach rumbled again, and she <laughs> more chocolate. That's what she was like, just absolutely delightful. Oh, bless her. Charming. Thank you so much, Fiston. Mm. It's very kind. So, uh, the final two questions, because we've been called to do what we're here for. Um, you've given your time uh, for, for free for this particular um, project, so uh, we ask the listeners to... Uh, donate to, to a charity. So what is the mm. charity of your choice, Donald? Um, the charity is Transverse Myelitis, which is very... N- nobody seems to know about it. My youngest daughter contracted it when she was about 30 and was paralysed for a good sort of six months. I had to learn how to walk again. And it's a, a virus that attacks the spinal nerves in the spinal cord. And... Uh, because it's quite rare, it's not a huge charity, but they desperately do need money to investigate how it can be cured because there's no actual cure. And people end up in wheelchairs for life. You know, she was lucky. She learned to walk, and uh, she walks pretty well. Well, mm. I've, done, I've done 250 of these, and that's a new one on me, so yeah. I'm happy to spread the word, and mm. I'll, I'll do a link to the website yeah. in my mm. outro. Okay. And the final question is this. We convene this to nominally talk about uh, Doctor Who, so what is your message to the Doctor Who fans out there? <laughs> um, <clears throat> well, Doctor Who's never going to die, because he's um, <laughs> transformed and uh, reappears every kind of six weeks. <laughs> So enjoy. Mm. Well, Donald Douglas, thank you very much indeed. My thanks to Donald for sort of dropping everything and being subjugated to that. Uh, And he'd been quite high on my list of people to do, so I was delighted we managed to uh, speak to him because he lives in France, you see. Um, So his charity is myelitis.org.uk, which is M Y E. 
litis.org.uk, myelitis.org.uk. Um, I would urge you, if you haven't, to go back to Who's Round, I think, 55. Um, just search Who's Round Terence Dix to play uh, the interview I did live on stage, the first one with Terence Dix, uh, who, uh, of course, left us recently. And uh, what a huge hole he leaves in the universe of Doctor Who. So um, thanks to Terence for everything. Thanks to Donald. Thanks to you for listening. I'm on Twitter at Toby Haydock. And uh, see you for edition 250 what the hell have i been doing with my life next time from big finish productions this is earth orbiter station one controller to eagle shuttle 4409 you are cleared for departure to Moonbase Alpha. Right now, for all you space enthusiasts out there, it's Space 1999. No! I'm detecting a spike in vital signs. Coffee, Commander Koenig. Hmm? Oh, yeah, sure. Thanks. Welcome to the program, Commissioner. Very happy to be here, Petra. <sighs> My big moment. Paul! Paul Morrow, is that you? The pilot's out cold. I got a total computer shut down here, Paul. Something hit us. Uh, oh, Victor. Oh, it's good to see you. Ah, he's breaking through, John. Stun him. But I've got another astronaut sick, just like the others, just as hopeless. How many more people are going to have to die, Simmons? Paul! Commander, there's a problem with Eagle 4 on approach to Sector 2. Break away immediately. That's an order. Break away. Moonbase Alpha, 13th September 1999. This is Dr. Helena Russell. Put me through to Metaprobe Commander Alan Carter. What's this? Not making house calls anymore, Doctor. Sector 2's exploding! My God! It's like they're watching us. The moon and the Earth are safe. People are dying out there, John. Recall all eagles. What exactly happening out there? Find out. Can we get through to Moonbase Alpha? It's only us who might get our socks blown off, Simmons. Space 1999. Breakaway.